This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. What's up, podcast people? Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast. Today is Thursday, April 12th. On today's show, one I'm really excited about, I got 30-year veteran sports reporter and columnist for the Buffalo News, Mike Harrington joins the podcast for a long interview. And if I don't mind saying, it's a good one. Mike and I talk about a wide variety of topics, including putting a bow on a miserable, disgusting Buffalo Sabre season, one that Mike was front and center of, having covered that inferno, his words, not mine, for the Buffalo News. Mike gives us his analysis of Ryan O'Reilly's very strong and some say very controversial comments at Locker Room Cleanout Day earlier this week. Mike also discusses Jack Eichel's growing maturity, why he needs to be captain right now, and what in God's name is Johan Larson of all people doing complaining, and a ton of other sabers and hockey stuff you'll want to hear. We also talk my personal favorite, baseball. Mike, who's now an official Hall of Fame voter, by the way, gives his take on the current induction policies and what he thinks needs to be changed. Mike talks about covering the World Series for the Buffalo News for nearly two decades now and shares one or two of his favorite World Series memories. And he talks about his time covering the Buffalo Bisons, something that started all the way back in 1988. God damn, Mike. We wrap up with some talk about social media, more specifically Twitter, and the relationship between reporter and consumer and how it's changed in recent years, largely because of things like Twitter and Facebook. Mike doesn't mince words on how he feels about it, and he's pretty open and honest about how he feels about the growing presence of bloggers in sports. Trust me, man, no matter how you feel about Mike Harrington on Twitter, he's a great writer, that's already well-known and undeniable, but he's also a great interview, and he's got a lot of things to say about a lot of different topics. When I first started this podcast a few months ago, I knew that I wanted to have Mike on as a guest, of course, after the hockey season ended. But let me rephrase that. I shouldn't have said hockey season. I should have said Sabre season because that shit always ends in early April because they don't ever make the playoffs. Mike's one of those polarizing reporters out there when it comes to fans. I kind of feel like that's the norm when it comes to these old school newspaper sports writers, which Mike is. Don't get me wrong. Mike takes advantage of Twitter. He knows what it means and he knows how to use it. He talks about that. He knows how important it is for getting information out quick, 
getting your information quick. So those kind of things Mike's great at, but I'm positive that if Mike had his way, we would live in a world with no Twitter and no Facebook and no Instagram, old school, probably wouldn't even have computers. Mike would probably rather sit there and bang away on an old school typewriter if he had his way. And by the way, that's totally a compliment. I love old school sports writers. I pretty much love old school everything. So you can feel however you want to feel about Mike. He's a little quick on the draw to fire back at a fan on Twitter and stuff like that. And trust me, I do understand. I get it. I do. I can understand why someone loves Mike. I love Mike. And frankly, I can understand why some of those fans don't. Though in fairness to Mike, those fans, a lot of them aren't really fans. Many of them are just trolls whose sole purpose in life is to get a response, a negative response out of people like Mike, getting him to explode or block them or whatever it is that uh, they're seeking out for him to do. I think he gives the negativity from these fans too much attention, frankly. A lot of people out there know Mike and know that he's a good guy. I know Mike's a good guy, but you know what? Frankly, there's a faction out there who thinks that Mike's kind of a prick. But, and this is what really matters here, one thing you cannot argue about is Mike Harrington's credentials. You can't do it. And if you do, then you're intentionally being stupid. He's got a track record like few other sports writers, not just in Buffalo, like few other sports writers in the country. Just look at his resume. He's been at the newspaper for more than 30 years now. He's covered 18 different World Series. He's covered the Buffalo Bisons since 1988. He's a member of the Buffalo Baseball Hall of Fame. He's now a voter for the National Baseball Hall of Fame. He covered college basketball for 15 years, and he's been covering the Buffalo Sabres for the past 11. Like it or don't like it. Those are qualifications that very few people in the sports writing industry can even hold a candle to. So I was pretty stoked to interview and add him to what's becoming a growing collection of impressive sports writers I've had on this podcast in just a couple months. I'll tell you what, I'm done blabbing. Without further ado, here's that interview, Mike Harrington, Buffalo News. My guest today is a 30-year veteran reporter and columnist at the Buffalo News, Mike Harrington. How you doing, Mike? I appreciate you taking time and doing this podcast. Hey, Pat, no problem. You know, I ended up in Florida last week, and uh, I went from 30 degrees to 90, and I'm back to 30 again. So my body's in complete shock right now, and it's not from the Sabres 62-point season. <laughs> well, I've been in Florida for about two years now, so I can't imagine the shock that my body would be in physically if I was in Buffalo right now, because I heard it's been a very cold winter. Yeah, you know, it, it was cold. There's not a lot of snow, but... You know, it just lingers now. You're, you're done with this stuff in April, and I get down to Florida last week, and it's, you know, pushing 90 in sunrise, and, yeah, you know, I'm feeling good, and I come back here, and I'm like, ugh. <laughs> you know, it's just the only way I can describe it is, ugh. I'm sure you're going to have a lot of, ugh, when I <laughs> get to the asking you a couple of Buffalo Sabres questions. You know, I should have I should have said two things, too, at the intro. We're going to talk some good hockey and some baseball, among other things, and two I better be careful to not swear or Mike's going to block me from my own podcast. Hey, 
Hey, you you know the policies. What do we say about the policies? Yeah, you know the policies. <laughs> it's kind of the old uh, Albert Bell thing back in the 90s when he used to yell at reporters who came to their locker, his locker to try to interview him. They would ask questions. He'd say, you know the policy, and he would just turn around and ignore them. You know, The policy on Twitter is I will talk to anybody. Do not F-bomb me. Do not D-bag me. It's very, very simple. And it's amazing how many people break it. I, I think some people want to get blocked by you. You know what, though? They're missing out on a lot of good information, a lot of witty banter. I mean, come on. Why would they want to do that? And some of them, you know, okay, some of them are high school tough guys, whatever. Some of them are people with their names and employers and kids and wives. I'm like, what are you doing? Sometimes I just I shake my head at what I see. I don't blame you. We're going to get into that in a little bit. I wanted to ask you now, you went to Kenesha's College, correct? That's correct. Now, are you from the area? Did you grow up in Western New York? Yeah, no, I went to I went to Sweet Home and I went to Canisius College, and you know we still joke about Niagara, and I covered many games at Niagara and enjoy going up there. But you know what? The old adage, if you're a Canisius grad, is you show me one purple eagle, you can't do it. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite things about you is that you're one of the few Buffalo sports writers I know who didn't go to freaking Syracuse. I know, I know. It's Syracuse. You know, the old adage about sports writers, I didn't go to Syracuse, I don't golf, I don't drink coffee, and I don't go crazy every time there's a Springsteen concert. So I'm kind of out there a little bit in terms of sports writers at times. <laughs> Speaking of sports writing, when you grew, did you always want to be a journalist? Now, I've had a couple of guys from the Buffalo News on this podcast already. Jay Skirsky and Ty Dunn, well, he used to work for the Buffalo News anyway. He always wanted to be a writer. Well, I talked to Tim, and he said it kind of more or less fell onto him. He didn't necessarily seek out from when he was young to become a journalist. Is that something you wanted that you knew you wanted to do when you were young? No, I mean, that didn't really start until college. You know, I think I was more in line with thinking about maybe being like a radio play-by-play guy for a sports team. But uh, the writing thing kind of happened in college. It was just an opportunity to join the Griffin, the student newspaper at Canisius, and it it grew and expanded and morphed from there. And I ended up, you know, being a clerk at Buffalo News and all through college was able to write and cover all sorts of things and ended up being an intern at the news. And it just one thing led to another kind of. When I was talking to Tim, we were, I don't remember, which is kind of getting to the point I'm trying to make. I'm shooting myself in the foot here. We were talking about some boxing match and he couldn't remember the details. And he kind of went into this diatribe how he's terrible at remembering specific details. But then he went out of his way to say that you have a photographic memory and like you remember everything. You remember like every detail from games. Yeah, I I think I have to plead guilty on that one. Uh, I have a lot of... uh... You know, I can't tell you what I ate for dinner yesterday, but I could tell you about a Sabres game I went to in 1976 or, you know, Braves games I went to or baseball playoff games I've covered. So I, I do have a weird penchant for certain things and, you know, what was the meal in the press room sometimes or what day of the week was the game. So, yeah, I have a lot of those tendencies at times. And, you know, strangely enough, that can help you. You know, you're on deadline writing a story and, you know, a team sets a record, there's a hat trick or something, and I can pull the date off or pull the score of the game off without too much trouble. And it's kind of something that has helped me out more more often than not. Not a lot of young fans wouldn't know this. We haven't been around for a while because – they know you as the Sabres guy now and, you know, someone who's covered baseball for a long time. And we'll get into both of that in a minute. But 
you covered college basketball for a very long time too. How, what was that? Like? <laughs> well, every year, every year in March, I start commenting about the NCAA tournament or the committee and the seedings, and I'll get these tweets saying, "Stick to hockey, stick to hockey," and I just, I have to laugh. I mean, I covered college basketball starting in 1983 in college, and I did a little bit for the news off and on in the late 80s. Then I became the college basketball guy for 15 years, 1992 to 2007. I was an AP top 25 voter for like 10 years. I knew conference commissioners and Final Four referees and all sorts of things. You know, I covered six Final Fours. I covered like 20 NCAA regionals and sub-regionals. And, and people don't know that now. It's been 11 years. And, and inevitably, every March, I get 20 tweets saying, stick to hockey. What do you know about this? And I, I just, it's comical. People just don't know. I re- that's actually where I first remember you from. I mean, I'm from Buffalo, and I grew up in, uh, went to high school in the late 80s. And I remember in the 90s, you were the college basketball guy. So I get a kick out of people saying that to you nowadays. Yeah, and I had a great run with it. I mean, I covered all of Beeline's years at Canisius. I covered virtually all of Joe Mihalik's years at Niagara. So I went to the NCAA tournament with their two teams. I went to the NCAA tournament and covered the famous Bonner-Kentucky double overtime game. I covered the Canisius run to the NIT Final Four. I had a lot of great runs. I had great Final Fours. I covered, you know, with our late great friend Alan Wilson, I covered Syracuse's Final Four victory in New Orleans. So I had a great run with it. And yeah, it's, it's funny to me because there's no question it was the era before Twitter. So right. now Twitter comes around 2009, 10, 11 range. I'm already on hockey. People didn't follow me on Twitter during the college basketball years. And they literally have no idea. That's what I did. Now you mentioned Al. I, I loved that guy. I covered a lot of high school basketball about a decade ago. And I used to see him like coming around at Buff State during tournament time. Great guy. Really miss that guy. Yeah, a legendary guy. And I always remember the, the Final Four in New Orleans. You know, we covered Syracuse, and they won the tournament, beating Kansas in the final. We went out to a restaurant in New Orleans one night, and it was actually an Italian restaurant, which a lot of people recommend. You don't think of an Italian restaurant in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And there was a waiter there named Enzo, and he kept talking to Alan, and Alan couldn't understand him. And he kept saying, Mike, why, are, why does he keep saying, are we cautious, are we cautious? And I said, oh, Al, He's saying, are you coaches? He thought we were coaches at the Final Four. He said, oh, coaches. He didn't understand poor Enzo's Italian. It was something I always remember. Pretty funny. <laughs> All right, so we're going to turn to hockey here. And I had, I need to preface this. I'm not just saying this. I mean it. I kind of turned my back on the Sabres this year. I just had enough. You, between you and John, you guys were my Sabres coverage this year. I don't think I watched more than two games from December on. I've just... Got disgusted with this team. So Monday was locker room cleanout day, and that turned out to be one of the more interesting days of the season, probably better than most of the season because of what Ryan O'Reilly <laughs> said. What's your take on that, on Ryan O'Reilly? I was about five feet away from Ryan O'Reilly during his entire interview. I stayed in the back of that scrum because my story was going to be about Eichel, but I wanted to hear what O'Reilly had to say, and nobody could have predicted that. Um, it was... You know, Pat, it was surreal. It was stunning to hear that. You know, but at the same time, I'm kind of back and forth on it. You know, we want to see guys speak with candor and speak their minds. And now Ryan O'Reilly was very candid with us, and we're going to turn around and kill the guy for it. Um, So that bothers me a little bit. But having said that, 
he's a $52 million contract player who's already made $18 million on that deal. He's expected to be one of the guys to bring this team out of the rut that they're in. And he really can't stand there and say he's lost his love for the game with the money they've paid him and the money he's cashed so far. And that's really concerning to me. Um, I believe you're, believe it or not, fully plan on intending to ask Jason Botterill at his end of season press cards, are you going to get Ryan O'Reilly to a sports psychologist? Hmm. Um, I think that's something that needs to be addressed because that was a startling admission that a star player like that could lose his love for the game, which was exactly his words, um, and not really have the impact on the game and the team that he needs to have. Um, they have to consider, can they go forward with him? But after what he said, I don't know who's trading for him. So it's really a, a sticky situation there, I think, that needs a lot more, I don't know if it needs a lot more context, but it needs a lot more internal study, that's for sure. You know, Maybe he was just so despondent over how things ended that he just let it all out, but uh, that hadn't really come out in previous interviews with Ryan O'Reilly, so it was... You know, he left the room when he was done, and we were all kind of looking at each other like, what just happened here? It was it was definitely one of the more bizarre interviews I've seen at a locker clean-out day. And I agree with you 100% because you're right, man. Fans kill players and coaches and GMs when they're so vanilla and they don't ever say anything of substance. But it's kind of like a line, like, I, I appreciate them being honest, like you said, but, I mean, that's that's a lot to digest that's a lot to say publicly that, that kind of that shocked yeah me. yeah i mean that that was a certain line where you know what you can say a lot but they're paying dude they're paying you too much money for you to say you don't love the game sure. you know and they they've committed to, even though it was the previous gm they've committed too much to you for seven years they traded too much to get you they've already paid you 18 million dollars and you're coming out saying you don't love the game right now. That's that's pretty deep. That, that's pretty deep, and it's pretty disturbing. So I don't know where they go with that going forward. But that's a, that's a tough one. That's a tough one to take from one of the guys who you're hoping can get this team out of the spot that it's in. Yeah, he needs he needs to be one of the core guys. And what do you make of Larson? I heard comments today that he spoke to a reporter from Sweden. I think it was, and he complained about the team helping each other too little, and then he was growing tired of the situation. I'm like, I'm tired of looking at the stat sheet and seeing the guy have four goals in 80 games this year. You know what my reaction to that is? I just actually stumbled on that a couple hours ago because I've been doing a couple other things. You're Johan freaking Larson. You know what? Who cares? <laughs> if, you don't, if you don't want to be here, the door's to the left. Make an exit and go. He's got another year left in his deal. They don't need him. They can stash him in Rochester next year. I mean, give me a break. He had four goals this year. I'm pretty sure two of them were in the empty nets. So he scored two goals an entire season when he beat a goalie. I mean, come on. I mean, he's a decent penalty killer and checker or whatever. But he, this is the thing. People say, well, it's a third or fourth line guy. Watch these teams in the playoffs. Their third and fourth line guys score goals. That's how these teams go deep into the playoffs. They have balance through the lineup. You don't have six Johan Larson and Jordan Nolans in your bottom six. <laughs> you wrote about Jack Eichel being needed to be captain. Explain to people who are listening who maybe haven't read that story yet. Tell her, I mean, God, everyone should know this by now, but 
Tell us why Jack Eichel needs to be the captain of this team. Uh, to me, it's a travesty if he's not the next captain. He's got to be captain, right? He's got to be captain. I mean, he's the face of the team. Who else is the face of the Buffalo Sabres? Is there anyone else you can remotely say is the face of the team? No. So he's the one who has to have the most credibility to stand up in the locker room, to talk to the coaches, to represent the team to the media after games and after practice. He's got to be the guy. Now, maybe he wasn't mature enough to do it at age 19. Well, now he's three years in the league at age 21. And let me tell you, Pat, at age 21, he's a lot different guy than he was at age 20. When I say that in nothing but the most positive way. At times last year, certainly widely seen his end-of-season press conference, Jack Eichel was nothing more than a punk. And that's the word I use for him. I just thought Jack Eichel was terrific this year. Right from training camp, he understood that he had to properly represent himself and represent the team. His relationship with the media this year was very good. I think his relationship with the coaching staff this year was very good, much better than it was with Dan Bilesma. And even he said it after locker clean-out, and we get it. The press conference last year, there was a lot of mitigating factors. He was tired about the coaching. We did not know at the time of the press conference that he had blown a $2 million bonus by one point. That was something we didn't know at the time. That might have changed our view of how that was if we had known that piece of information. That hadn't come out yet. So that was probably weighing on him. But I know for a fact the PR staff of the Sabres has done an excellent job. They do media drills these players all the time. They went over the tape of that press conference with Jack Eichel, explained to him why this was not a good way to represent the team. And he learned from it. And that's all you ask from people is to learn from your experiences in life. And not just learn on the ice. You have to learn off the ice, too, when you're a $10 million player, a face of the franchise. And everything really changed when he signed that contract. He also signed a pact pretty much that he's going to have to understand all the other responsibilities that come with that money. And I think he really does understand, and he knows that things have to change on the ice for this club next year. And I think you need to make him the captain. Let him represent the team. Let him be in charge of the room for sure. So there's no doubt whose team it is. And I just think that day is coming. It should come sooner rather than later. That's great points. Well, some fans forget you don't work for the team. You don't live or die with their success like some do in that building. You frankly, you couldn't give a shit less. Your job's to produce quality content. That's that's what you do for a living. I'd probably even, in fact, I'd surmise and correct me if I'm wrong, but if they're not going to be a good team, a playoff team, as a journalist, I probably would say that it's almost better that they suck. It just gives you better stories to write. Am I wrong there? Pat, I have a saying I have a saying I tell people. I want to cover a Stanley Cup team or I want to cover an inferno. And we've had raging three-alarm fires here for several years at times. I don't want to cover an 81-point team. That's the most boring team to cover, mm-hmm. a team that's completely even-steven. This thing this year, fans were not interested. Fans were upset. It was a great year to cover. There were all kinds of stories here. Now, people say you don't care if they win or lose, and I don't at all. I'm a journalist. I don't care if they win or lose. Now, I care if they win because people in the town will be happier. You know, people, I live here. These are my friends, and they want to see the Sabres win. It would be great for my business. 
I think there'd be plenty more sales of single copy sales of the Buffalo News and web subscriptions and everything if the Sabres were winning. We saw the numbers in January when the Bills got to the playoffs, when the Sabres were in the Winter Classic. If the Sabres were in the playoffs, things would explode. That would be good for our business. Um, and the other thing is the personal standpoint. It'd be great to be able, instead of being done with the season right now, I'd love to be able to cover 15 or 20 more hockey games for the next six or seven weeks. I don't get that opportunity because the Sabres are done. So those factors, sure, let's win. Let's keep playing hockey, but it doesn't work that way. And if they lose and if they stink and if they're in 31st place, I write that. And the number of people who say to me, well, you are against the tank, so when they win, you're not allowed to write about it. No, that's kind of not how it works. If they are in the Stanley Cup final next year, I'm going to write about that too because that's the job. And I'll say good things if they're in the Stanley Cup final because that's the job. And people don't understand that because all this team has done for so long is lose that that's all we've had to write about. Well, for what it's worth, I think a few of your Sabres columns this year have been some of your best work. I mean, you've dropped a hammer on them, and I loved it. I'm not going to lie. I loved it. It was some of your best work. This team needs to they need to get hammered. It's frustrating. Mike, Mike, I've been a fan, not on the same level as the Bills, so I'm not going to go there, but I've been a big Sabres fan pretty much all my life. When I came down to Florida, I got the NHL ticket. I watched all the games. I started out this year, I was watching the games. I just got disgusted with them, and, and I just couldn't do it anymore. You dropped the hammer on them, as you should. I, I think it was some well, of your best work I appreciate that, Pat. You know it, it, yeah, I appreciate that. And I remember, in particular, in December, when they were shut out three times in a row, I clearly dropped the hammer on them probably more than any time in my career. Yes. I called them an embarrassment to the logo in our front to Seymour Knox. Uh, yes. You know, and keep in mind, people say, oh, you don't know about the Sabres, this and that. And I remind people, the first Sabres game I went to, I was six years old. It was 1971 against the Chicago Blackhawks in the odd, sitting in the Reds. I was at numerous playoff games in the 70s and 80s. I was in the standing room area in the 90s during the LaFontaine-McGillney year. So I've been to these games for a long time, and I have the basis of history. And I've seen when this franchise was really good, and I've seen when this franchise is really bad. So I'm allowed to say if this thing this year is a disgrace, I'm the person to say it. You know, I've been at these games since the second season they were in existence. So I know the difference of what is quality hockey and what isn't. I want to talk a little more in general terms about social media and fans in a few, but before that, in regards to the Sabres, this whole tank versus anti-tank stuff over the past few years, if nothing else, it's really divided fans. It's like almost like Trump versus Hillary kind of divide. You know what I mean? It, it's tough to yeah. digest. And whatever side of the fence you fall on, it's just like, I don't remember ever seeing such division in Buffalo when it comes to sports ever. And I, again, any sport. No, no. And, and you know what? I think part of it is there was division from fans. There was division from media, you know, because their flagship radio station was clearly in on it with them. Um, having said that, obviously I, I wrote a whole column about it before that season ever started. So I was not a, a late bloomer on it. I wrote it in October. This is not a good idea. You don't want to do it, whatever. Okay, they did it. It should have worked. Yeah. They did it in a year. where There's no guarantees this year. Remember now, they finished last. They have an 18% chance of getting Rasmus Dahlin by finishing last. 
when they finished last in 2015, they had a 100% chance of getting Connor McDavid or Jack Eichel. It was a big difference. 2015, the league changed the rules because of what the Sabres in Arizona did. Um, they got one of the guys. It should have worked. For all of my objection to it, and I believe to this day I have still right to object to it, it should have worked. They blew it. They blew it with other things they did, and they tore their team down too much. One of the reasons it worked in Toronto is a couple of reasons things work in Toronto. First, they won the lottery, so they got Austin Matthews. Second thing is they ended up getting Babcock as the coach, who didn't come to Buffalo because the Sabres didn't have McDavid. And the third reason is the Leafs had a lot of guys in place. They still have. Think about the Leafs roster right now, Pat. Nazem Kadri, Morgan Riley, Jake Gardner, James Van Riemsdyk, guys like that filling out their roster before they added Matthews and Mitch Marner, before they got Frederick Anderson in goal. The Sabres basically didn't have a lot of guys. They traded certain guys to make sure the tank worked. So your team was stripped so far down. Your drafting was poor. One of my favorite statistics of the Sabres is since 2010, the only player outside the first round of the draft who's played more than 50 games in the NHL is Jake McCabe. One guy. That's crazy. They don't ever get, they don't ever get players out of the first round of the draft to make the NHL. Um, the tank was the most fascinating story of my career in hockey. It was, at times, the most frustrating story. People still bring it up. I bring it up. People bring it up to me. You know, if they win the Stanley Cup now, sorry, it's not because they tanked. If they win the Stanley Cup now, it's because Jason Botterill fixed all the mistakes they made while they tanked. Right. And all the mistakes they made after they tanked. You know, and maybe it's because they got Casey Middlestat and more guys to help Jack Eichel because Jack Eichel is a great player. But, you know, the Sabres tanked all this time and played poorly all this time. They don't have Aaron Eckblad. They don't have Connor McDavid. They don't have Austin Matthews. Um, can Jack elevate his game to be like I wrote today? Can he be what Taylor Hall and Nathan McKinnon have done, guys who suddenly became hard trophy candidates? Jack needs to elevate his game to that level. He hasn't even had a 70-point season in the NHL yet. He hasn't had a 30-goal season in the NHL yet, and he's already got a $10 million contract. So these are all the side connections to tanking. And the other thing is that what you said, it divided and poisoned the fan base. A lot of the fans were against it. A lot of the fans were for it. A lot of people, myself included, will never forget the Arizona game where most of the crowd rooted against the Sabres, which I still think was the most disgusting display I've ever seen at a Buffalo sporting event. You know, the number of people who revise history and say, well, the Blackhawks tanked and the Penguins tanked. No, the Blackhawks finished fifth from the bottom the year they got Patrick Kane. The Penguins got Crosby in a year there was no hockey after the season, and it was a lottery where multiple teams had the same odds, including the Sabres. You know? So there's a lot of revisionist history going on. There was a lot of cheerleading going on from the flagship radio station. Um, you know, and, and people got sold a bill of goods. Tim Murray made a lot of mistakes. You know, people assumed by 2018 the Sabres would be Stanley Cup contenders. And here they are still in 31st place. And Oh, by the way, one last point. Where are the Edmonton Oilers right now? Yeah. Not that far ahead at this point. Yeah, right? I know. You know, you when you talk about the divide, 
it, it brings back memories. I'm going to confess something and I'm not proud of it. I was a pro tank guy at that time. I was, I wanted them to tank. I got sold on it. I'm not going to blame anyone except myself. I did get sell, sold on it. And here's the deal. My father-in-law, who's a, you know, obviously he's much older than me. He's a lifelong hockey fan. Me and him watched some games together. He didn't want to be around me during that time. You know, he never wanted the Sabres to lose. He's one of those guys you don't ever want to lose. No matter what, you know, what the deal is. It's a bad culture or whatever you want to say, but he didn't want the Sabres to lose. And I did. And that caused a a legitimate divide. And I'm sure we're not the only household in in Western New York where that happened to. So it's just an ugly situation. I had friends. I had friends from college calling me up saying, what are you doing? They need to get one of these guys. I'm like, they're ruining the culture of their team. They're poisoning their fan base. They're not going to win. This isn't going to work. It's going to cause too many problems. You know, you, you, you've created a situation where you created a situation where losing is acceptable. And people say, well, most of those guys are gone. And that's true. Well, Ristolainen is not gone. Gergensen isn't gone. You know, there were a lot of guys around still here. Um, losing became acceptable. You know, it's just not a good scene overall. And, you know, people, I know now, you know, the one thing people say, well, it works. The Sabres just screwed it up. It worked for the Cubs and the Astros and now the 76ers. Okay, well, yeah, except the Cubs needed John Lester at the end and the Astros needed Justin Verlander at the end. And the Astros got Jose Altuve as an international free agent. And the Astros actually picked Mark Appel with their number one overall pick, and he never made it. So, you know, for all the Springer and Correa talk, the Astros made a lot of mistakes and didn't really win because they tanked. And and the Cubs, okay, they got Chris Bryant, whatever. But, you know, hockey's a little bit different. But, you know, in the 76ers, how many years in a row did they have to tank to get where they are today? So, you know, I just think nothing's automatic. Edmonton's going nowhere. The Leafs, you know, I think the Leafs look great this year. They could lose in the first round again for the second year in a row, too. So, you know, let's let's put the brakes on. It's automatic. Yeah, it can work in the right situation, and it can be a disaster in certain situations, too. To say it, it's the only way to go. People say, what did you want them to do, keep Vanek and Roy? No, I wanted them to do what other teams do, to draft and develop and have a GM that makes trades and that's how you build a team. You know, how did the Los Angeles Kings win two Stanley Cups? They drafted, they developed, they traded for Jeff Carter and Mike Richards. You know, that's how you win. How did the Boston Bruins do it? You know, Patrice Bergeron was what number forty-seven overall. That's how you win. That's the way to do it. Now, obviously, you know the roster is not very good right now, and so he doesn't have the horses. This roster seems to be a poor fit for the style that Phil Housing wanted to play coming here, especially with the defense. How, but how much of the blame does Phil Housley deserve for this disaster of a season? I mean, he's not getting fired, nor should he. He definitely shouldn't get fired. But how, how much blame do you think Phil Housley deserves for this? It's got to be some. Well, he deserves some. He, he's a head coach. Um, you know, we saw Jordan Nolan too often. We saw Nathan Boyle too often. And Victor Antipin sat too much. That's on the head coach. Um, he tried to change him and Davis Payne, his assistant, changed the power play when they didn't need to change the power play. It was number one in the league. And the power play struggled for two months because they were stubborn and until they went back to what worked. Um, 
But Housley was pretty revealing in his end-of-season talk, too. It's the first time he mentioned it, but he said he came in and he was working on structure and systems and realized when the season started, holy cow, we got to work on conditioning. So he kind of didn't work on conditioning in September because I think he assumed NHL players would come to training camp in shape. And clearly some of them obviously did not. So Housley's message was to us was just wait until training camp next year. It'll be a different story. We are going to be ready to go from day one. Those are our playoffs. And now remember when Housley played, he played for Scotty Bowman. I'm sure he went through more than his share of bag skates at Saberland and the odd in practice. So I think we'll see a little bit different Housley. There won't be the kid gloves. I think Housley came in with kid gloves knowing that the players ran Dan Bilesma out. I think that I think that I think that was a factor too. I think Housley will be better next year. Ultimately, even though he's a Hall of Fame player and he was a great assistant in Nashville, you know what, Pat? He was a first-year head coach. He made rookie head coach mistakes at times. He had to learn on the fly. I expect Housley to be better next year. How much do you think Jason Botterill can realistically turn this uh, this roster over in one year? Again, realistically. Well, I think that was one of my bigger mistakes. I think. I was too easy on Botterill in the first half of the season. Um, people say, well, he's stuck with Murray's team. Well, he's stuck with Murray's core, but people forget half of this team this year was brought in by Botterill. Mm-hmm. You know, Chad Johnson came back in goal. Botterill re-signed him. Botterill sealed the deal in Antipa, and he could have said no. He signed him. You know, it was Botterill who brought in Jordan Nolan and Jacob Josephson and traded for Scandella and Pominville and traded a third-round pick for Boilu. I mean, there's eight or nine guys that Botterill brought in this year that were not on this team. Um, how many of them had a lot of impact? You know, he's a cap savant. Now, maybe he was waiting to help clear some space out. He'll get some room this year. He'll, get, he'll probably buy out Molson. He's going to get rid of Georges, won't be re-signed. They won't have Leonard back, but now they're going to pay Eichel. Ten million instead of nine hundred twenty-five grand. So Bottomwell still got cap issues, and he's going to need to add another top draft pick, and he will. Will that guy be on the team? Probably. He adds Middlestad. He adds Gooley. You know, he has to figure out how is he going to re-sign Casey Nelson. You know, I don't see how Bottomwell can do a lot here. He's kind of stuck with the cap unless he unless he trades O'Reilly, unless he trades Ristolainen and does something big. I still think we're going to get to opening night in October. I have no idea who it's going to be, but there's going to be a guy on the Sabres, Pat. We're going to say, holy cow, I can't believe hmm, is on the team. Because hmm. Botterill is going to make that kind of move that you're going to be surprised by. I really hope so. One last Sabres question, then we'll move on. Not all fans know the story. Most have heard it, but they might not know the story. Briefly, tell us the Lindy Ruff, Mike, you coach story from, I think it was 2011, 2012. Yeah, we were in Chicago, and Billy Lano committed a terrible turnover, and Lindy Ruff, it was an NBC game, and Lindy Ruff was interviewed by Pierre Maguire during the second period and started going about Drew Stafford making a mistake on the play. Well, Lano made a terrible drop pass, and the Blackhawks went in a breakaway and scored. So I started asking about Lano and about why wouldn't you bench Billy Lano for a play that's that terrible. And, you know, he started saying, well, Jochen Hecht was sick, and we were short guys. And I said, you're not even going to bench him for a single shift 
making a play like that, what kind of accountability does that show the other team? And uh, he said, no, I, I couldn't do it. What do you want me to do? Hesh was sick. All right, so I may have asked the question two or three times, but he hadn't answered it either, so I was going to keep asking until I got an answer. <laughs> and finally, Lindy said, ah, and he walks away. He turns around and says, Mike, you coach. <laughs> well, the, the funny part about it was I had turned my tape recorder off. Paul Hamilton from WGR turned his recorder off. Sabres.com was off. That little clip is lost to history. There is no audio or video of it. So I immediately tweeted that out. And it became a big deal, and people kept using Mike, you coach. Mike, you Mike, you decide the press room meal. Mike, you decide the replay <laughs> challenges. And whatever they could come up with, they would come up with. So the next day we get to Winnipeg, and Lindy starts his pregame press conference, and the first thing he says to me, he kind of looks at me, and I kind of look at him, and he's like smirking. You know, we had a good relationship, and I'm like, what? What are you laughing at? He said, are we still fighting or are we friends? I said, I said, we're always friends. Sometimes we just disagree. And he said, oh, okay, that's cool. So I remember thinking to myself, the mistake I made was I should have run to a sporting goods store in Winnipeg that day, showed up at his press conference the next day with a whistle around my neck. Because he would have said, said, what are you doing? I said, you offer me a spot on your staff. I'm ready to coach. That's great stuff, man. That's awesome. Let's switch gears to baby. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's funny. All right, so let's switch gears to baseball real quick. You've been covering the Bison since 1988. Let me start there. Are you a baseball guy before a hockey guy? What's your What's your preference? It's hard. I'm a baseball guy if I'm watching a game on my own or buying a ticket or sitting in the stands, but it's become very difficult to cover baseball compared to covering hockey. How come? The games are, the games are longer. Games can go multi-extra innings. It might rain. Players are more difficult to deal with. Uh, players are sometimes not available for an hour after a game. They're working out. They're eating. God forbid you walk up to a guy when he's got his second fork full of mashed potatoes in his mouth. Um, it's become very onerous. And the other thing is you walk into a clubhouse in Toronto, for example, after a Blue Jays game, and they've won the game 6-1. to one. You're thinking you're a happy group and talk to three guys. There's no one in there for like 45 minutes. It's just become horrible to cover. I'd much rather cover hockey. So from that standpoint, I'm a hockey guy now from a media standpoint. But yeah, I'd love the actual game of baseball itself. What are a few of your favorite Bison's memories? I mean, you covered a team for a long time. Yeah, you know, I always think back to those championship years. Um, They won in 97 and 98. They won again in 2004. Um, you, you think of opening day in 1988, the first game of the ballpark is an incredible memory. Guys, Bob Patterson throwing a no-hitter, Tom Prince hits a home run. But I, I really go back to 1997, the first championship, the first time they ever won it. And I feel very fortunate how many people were in the ballpark at in Des Moines, Iowa. You know, um, They win the game on a home run in the 10th inning by Sean Casey after they blew a two-run lead in the ninth. And I couldn't find Sean Casey for 45 minutes after the game. And I'm thinking, I'm in Des Moines, Iowa. This kid just hit a home run to win their first title in 36 years, and I don't have a quote from him. I'm getting fired. <laughs> we ran around the ballpark. We ran around outside the park looking at the autograph hounds. Did you see a player come out? No one found him. This is in the pre-cell phone days, Pat, and we finally found him. After about an hour, he walks back in the clubhouse. He was in the concourse of the stadium in a phone booth 
calling his father back in Pittsburgh to tell him that, A, he hit a home run to win the game, to win the championship, and, B, he was getting called up to the big leagues because his parents couldn't watch the game on the Internet. That didn't exist. There was no MILB TV. There was no Internet to follow call-ups. No one knew what happened. He was on a payphone in the concourse in 1997, which sounds like it shouldn't have been that long ago, but in the way technology in the world has changed, it is. Sure. You were inducted into the Buffalo Baseball Hall of Fame in 2013. Describe that feeling. That's got to be an incredible feeling. It was. I was shocked. I had an idea that I was nominated, but it was a tremendous honor, you know, and I, I... you know, halls of fame normally are reserved for players and managers, and I go in that room all the time, and I look at some of the people on the wall, and I shake my head. But, you know, I stopped and thought about it after a couple of members of the committee pointed it out to me. Oh, I've written about the team for 25 years. I had been the number one beat writer for 20 years. I would covered hundreds of games, including road games and playoff games. Then on top of that, I've covered, you know, 18 World Series for the Buffalo News and multiple MLB postseason series and hundreds of Indians games, and they were an affiliate of the Bison. So it, it was a tremendous honor, and it still remains maybe one of the top honors I've ever had to be in that list. And, you know, every I'm on that committee now with selects, and I see the names of who gets selected, and it it does kind of blow my mind. I'm a writer. I don't play. I'm not in the game. But to get honored like that, it was terrific. Now another honor that was bestowed upon you is you've become a Hall of Fame voter. That's an honor and a responsibility, and I'm sure it's one that you take seriously. Here's my question. How do you feel about the rule now that uh, Hall of Fame ballots need to be public? I have a strong take on that. I don't know if it's going to match you. I have have no problem with it. The only problem I have with it is I think at times everybody puts their ballot out, and it can cause groupthink. And I think guys who still have not voted see how the voting is going. Yeah, that's right. I, I would prefer, I would prefer them to pass a rule that says we will publish all the votes after the election results are announced, and at that point, write your columns. That's what we have in the NHL. The NHL awards we vote. And this is the first time this year they're going to publish all of our ballots for the Hart Trophy, the Norris, whatever. But we are instructed not to write a column, not to write about who we voted for until after the NHL award show in June. So no one can compile the votes and see who's going to win before the show. There are websites now that compile all the Hall of Fame votes as you go. So right. pretty much you know who's getting in. Um, I think it creates a lot of discussion, but I think sometimes guys who haven't voted yet, oh, I better vote for this guy or not waste my vote on this guy because he's not getting in. I right. think. There's too a little too much groupthink going on right now. Yeah, I, I, you know what? You make a really good point. Long as long as it's revealed afterwards, because I don't think guys should be able to get away with voting for people like I was looking up when I was doing some research here. Guys like Hal Morris and B.J. Surhoff and David Segee were getting Hall of Fame votes in recent years. That that can't happen. You know what I'm saying? No. I just I don't. And and then on the other side. There's always going to be a couple people who, no matter who the player is, they're not going to vote for him because they don't want someone to be unanimous choice. Like Mariano Rivera is eligible next year. He does. Who's going to say that he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame? But you know, right. but you know, someone's know. going to right. Someone's going to vote no for him next year because it's his first right. year. What, right. What, what, I mean, the record is. I think Ken Griffey had the record. I think it's only ninety-eight percent. Right. Um, there are going to be 
three or four or five votes that don't go to Mariano Rivera because some people just say if Babe Ruth wasn't automatic or Ted Williams wasn't unanimous or Stan Musial wasn't unanimous, then Mariano Rivera was not going to be unanimous. I hate that. I, mean, I hate that, too. Is he a Hall of Famer or is he not a Hall of Famer? Don't manipulate the ballot for some warped piece of history. I, I couldn't agree more. One more Hall of Fame question here. What do you think of the Hall of Fame rule now? You gotta have, there's a 10-player limit. Do you think that that's a fair rule? Do you like that? Uh, I'd like to see that raised. I'd like to see that go up to maybe 12. I don't want to see 16 or 18. It's still a Hall of Fame, but I do think... You know, there are times where it would help to get to 12 because if you're calling guys to get 75% of the vote to get in, you're not going to get nine guys inducted. Just the simple math of it says it's going to be tough. So I'd like to see that go up. Um, you know, if there are guys you leave off your ballot, and you're like, Eesh. you know, I mean, this year even, you just don't, you know, I, there are guys I'd like to see get, continue on the ballot to get more than the 5% needing to stay on. You know, you don't know what's going to happen in future years. They get 10 years in the ballot. You know, maybe Kenny Lofton or Jorge Posada or guys like that need further study, you know, and they never make the ballot. You know, Carlos Delgado, they don't get 5% of the ballot. They're gone in the first year. And to me, maybe those guys need further study, and they don't get that because they don't make the ballot past 5%. You mentioned earlier that you've worked 18 World Series what have been your one or two favorites? Oh, that's pretty easy. Uh, the number one World Series by far is 2001 Yankees Diamondbacks. Um, it was a great series. Obviously, it went to the ninth inning of Game Seven. There were dramatic home runs in the fourth and fifth games in mm-hmm. New York. But it just the, the connection to the country and what it meant to the country at that time to have a World Series played in New York, to have the dramatics that happened in those games is something you'll never forget. And it's the backdrop of, you know, visiting Ground Zero and seeing the, the, the missing posters in Grand Central Station and seeing President Bush's motorcade come out around the corner, out the back of old Yankee Stadium, and seeing him on the mound and, and counting the number of umpires behind the plate, having a guy in the press box next to me say, why is there an extra umpire? Until we realized it was a Secret Service man yes. wearing a vest posing oh. as an umpire. You know, it was just a lot of surreal scenes like that. Um, so f- for the, st- the standpoint of the country, it's that one. And then the other one from the standpoint of history, I know Game 7 and 16 with the Cubs in Cleveland was great. Um, but I really go back to the whole situation in 2004 with the Red Sox. I covered that whole ALCS against the Yankees, which was incredible. And the World Series was kind of, anticlimactic. You knew they were going to win it. But the thing I always remember, Pat, I tell people is I left the press box for the ninth inning of Game 4 in St. Louis. And I went and sat down in the 100 level of seats at Old Bush Stadium. Because back then we were an afternoon paper, so I had time. I wasn't stuck on my computer. Right. Well, I was struck by the number of Red Sox fans around me. Like, God, all these Red Sox fans got into the ballpark. This is really cool for them to be here to see this moment. And then it came out a couple days later that Cardinals fans were leaving. The team was losing three to nothing. There were thousands of Red Sox fans outside the ballpark, and St. Louis people at the end of the eighth inning opened the gates and let them into Bush Stadium. Wow! So there were a ton, a ton of people without a ticket for Game Four of the 2004 World Series who saw the ninth inning sitting in the hundred level of Bush Stadium, and it was really—I don't think security-wise something like that would ever happen now. But back then, that's what the Cardinals did, and those people had a great memory, and it was. 
really something those last three outs in the bottom of the night to be down probably 20 rows from the field and that happened well that's a good story and memory for you wasn't a good year for me i'm a i'm a new york guy and losing to boston <laughs> sucks so i hate that let's stick with new york real quick how quick did these fans turn on john carlos standing already holy crap man they're going, they're going to sit out of him twice already. I and mean, don't get me wrong, he, you know, he's playing terrible right now. He's struck out five times, two times, what, over four days or something like that? But he's playing, and he's playing in 30-degree weather. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's cold outside. You know, he's played in Miami. I, you know, he was fine in Toronto that first day. I just think, you know, he'll be fine. He's got to deal with the... New York situation, the slump. He's not going to be Ed Whitson. He'll be fine. <laughs> One last baseball thing here. I know you've been busy pumping out content for hockey, end of the year stuff, but you think, are the Mets for real? They look good right now. You know, I don't know if they're for real, but I'll tell you this. People in Cleveland love Mickey Calloway. They loved him as a pitching coach. They loved him character-wise and makeup-wise. So I think he can make a lot of difference. I think as much as we love him here from the connection in Buffalo, Terry Collins' days were probably, you know, his shelf life was over. Um, so I think Mickey Calloway is making a big difference. The Mets still need to stay healthy. The pitchers need to stay healthy. Cespedes needs to stay healthy. You know, right now the Yankees' health situation kind of looks like the Mets last year. Um, but, yeah, I think I still think the Nationals are the best team. But, boy, this series in Washington, you know, sent a message here and, so far, the Mets look good. And when you have a new manager and people need to believe, you need to get off to a good start. We've seen how the questions are circling around Gabe Kapler and Philly already, but uh, right now Callaway's really got things going and people believe right away in what he's doing. I want to talk a little social media for a few minutes here. Do you think, in your opinion, has Twitter enhanced or has it damaged the relationship between reporter and reader? Because I feel like this. I feel like you're an old school guy to me from from what I know about you. Like in a perfect world, there would be no, in a Mike Harrington world, there wouldn't be any Twitter or Instagram or any of that stuff. And don't get me wrong, you've embraced it and done very well with it. You're very engaging on social media. But I feel like there's a lot of reporters who have, if they had their way, it, there wouldn't be any. Maybe I'm Yeah, wrong. I agree. I No, I agree with that. I think you know, there's pros and cons to it. I like the immediacy of Twitter. I can get information out faster. I can get my stories out faster. I don't like, you know, the trolls. I don't like the people bashing it, you know, because people are quick to bash you. Like, do you bash your account like this? Do you bash a doctor? Do you bash the plumber who comes to your house? Or why are you so quick to bash a newspaper reporter? I'm a trained professional. You know, why are you so quick to bash me all the time? Um, but it's really a good medium to get information out fast. Um, you know, but the other thing about it is it's hurt in terms of your relationship with sources. Uh, there's really no off the record anymore because people are afraid anything they say, even in a side conversation, is going to end up on Twitter. So th that's hurt us from that standpoint because, you know, there's no, well, even when he uses this, it's going to be 20 hours from now before it appears in the paper. Guys are nervous as soon as they say something. Two minutes later, it's on Twitter, and they have to deal with the ramifications of it. From that standpoint, it's kind of hurt um, and made life more difficult. But it's a different time, you know, and I, I often think we miss them tremendously. How would our friends Larry Felzer and Jim Kelly be today with Twitter around? 
How would it change the job, the way they did it, the way they were able to cultivate sources that you really can't now, the way the teams use Twitter and control the message more? Um, it's changed everything, and it's not remotely how I did things even 10, 15 years ago compared to the way I do the job now. I had a nice conversation with Tim, Tim Graham, about this, and, and I questioned him. I'm like, all right, I think personally, Mike, the reason why a lot of fans get at you is because you're a somebody, you know, in, in, in terms of sports and the media, you know, you're a local sports media celebrity guy. Everybody, not everybody, a lot of people know you. They, they take shots. And, and the same thing with Tim. I would say, Tim, why are you responding to somebody who's saying obscenities to you or not even obscenities, just really stupid troll-like things? This guy's got 29 followers, but yet you're talking to him like you would go back and forth with Peter King. You know what I mean? So I'll kind of pose that same question to you. It's like, I get it. You, no matter who you are, it doesn't give someone a right to troll you and, and say negative and stupid things and not allow you to defend yourself just because you're Mike Harrington and you know, you're know you a reporter and you cover the Sabres for a living and you got a ton of Twitter followers. So I'm not saying you shouldn't defend yourself, but it's got to be hard to not want to respond to every single person who says something stupid to you because God, I mean, you retweet some or go back with them. I can't imagine how many per week, how many dumb things that must come at your, your way. I can't even imagine it. And, and what people see sometimes that I retweet or I'll respond to people, literally, Pat, I probably am responding to a third of the replies, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you, you cannot even imagine in certain days the, vo- the sheer volume of replies that I can get. And some of them are really ridiculous. Some of them are per- full of profanity and I just ignore and some of them need to be called out and need to be explained why they're really dumb. You know, because I do have a belief that if somebody says something you think is really dumb, maybe 10 or 20 or 100 other people have the same opinion. Right. Sometimes you need to explain why that's just not valid. Um, but people say to me a lot, well, why do you respond to all these people? And I say, I'm probably responding to a third of the replies I get. And people are shocked at that, but that's the truth. That's how many replies I get. Um, I could, if I responded to everything I got, I would be doing nothing day in and day out of being on Twitter. I mean, that's how many I get. Um, people are very passionate about the Sabres and baseball and whatever. But that's kind of the, the deal. I mean, it's really not nearly the volume you might think it is of, oh, he's responding to every Tom, Dick, and Harry who speaks to him. But it's really not the case. Well, there are a lot of people who are passionate about the Sabres. And sadly, I think there's more than enough people who are just passionate about being jerks and their only goal in life is to try to get a rise out of someone like you. Yeah, in my And sometimes they do, and sometimes I make my own bed, and sometimes I want to call them out and embarrass them because they should be embarrassed at times. If you're a husband, a father, and you say, I'm an accountant or I'm a this or that, and it's right in your profile, and you're acting like that to me as another adult, that's not cool. And sometimes you need to be embarrassed for that. You kind of remind me in a way when it comes to Twitter, and I have to explain this properly so it don't come off as stupid, but I grew up a big wrestling fan, okay? And in the 1980s, Ric Flair was one of those guys. And I used to buy all the wrestling magazines every single month. And at the end of the year, they would have um, the, a poll, awards. And every year, Ric Flair would be the one guy. He would win most hated wrestler, and most popular wrestler at the same time. I'm like, yo, man, that, that's Mike Harrington. 
A lot of people love you. I mean, like I said, man, you're a content machine and you do to your credit, just like what I said with Tim, you guys will interact. You'll, you'll talk, you will talk to, you will talk to Bob Smith with the same respect that you talk to Bob Casas, as long as, you know, it, it keeps it polite and respectful. So I love that about you. But at the same time, just like I said with Tim, you get hated because, yo, you're blocked, you this and that, and you respond back. So it's like, you're the most hated and the most popular Buffalo Twitter guy all at the same time. Well, and you know, I think, <laughs> I do, believe it or not, I appreciate that. <laughs> I do think one of the reasons that people, you know, a lot of people hate me, a lot of people like me, sometimes, but I think everyone kind of tolerates me. If you want information, I'm your guy. Yeah. If you want opinions about college hoops or baseball, I'm your guy. So I don't really understand why you wouldn't follow me. Yes, maybe I'm critical of the Sabres at times. Well, I'm not a fan. Why is that so hard at times for people to get? I'm not a fan. You know, but I'm going to give you the information. And ultimately, there are times the Sabres are in Edmonton. I'm in Edmonton. If you want to know what's going on, you have very limited options of people who aren't connected with the team. So if I'm in Edmonton, you kind of need to follow me to find out what's going on. You know, if you want to get opinions about things or you want to get updates or whatever, you know, that's kind of how it works. I mean, I have a good situation where I'm in a unique spot. You know, there's tons of people in Buffalo who, believe it or not, care about the Sabres game in Calgary. Well, I'm actually in Calgary. I got on a plane and flew out there and climbed the catwalk in the Saddle Dome to get to the press box, and my knees were shaking when I did it, but I'm there. So that gives me the advantage that, you know, you want people to think of you as a necessity, even if it's just for that particular night. One last question about social media and journalism, kind of tied together a little bit. The relationship between the mainstream media and bloggers is it's kind of a roller coaster. I think there's some bloggers out there who are very good bloggers who I think the mainstream media for the most part respects and vice versa. There's some bloggers, you know, are very respectful to mainstream media and vice versa. And then there's the other half where just they don't seem to get along or just doesn't seem to be any respect. What What's your opinion on uh, on bloggers as a whole? Now, I know the one thing, and I've been on both sides, Mike. I mean, certainly not at your level, but there was a time I've covered the Bills for a season, like actually covered the Bills in the press box. Same thing with the Sabres. In fact, that's how I met Tim back in 2000. I mean, granted, I didn't work for the Buffalo News. I worked for a couple little rag papers, but whatever. They got me a full season of covering the Sabres and getting into the locker room. So I, I get it where you come from. You get the access that a blogger simply can't get. So I completely understand that, you know, being in the locker room and, you know, being around the team on a daily basis like that. What's your opinion right now on the relationship between bloggers and the mainstream media, I guess, as a whole? It's a hard, it's a hard one. Most bloggers are ultimately are not trained professionals. You know, they didn't, they haven't had the training. They haven't had the background. They just want to suddenly cover the Sabres or cover the Bills without the background of covering high school football and standing in the pouring rain with your notebook and a clipboard and, and a baggie protecting yourself from the rain. Um, but there are a lot of good bloggers out there, too, and there's a lot of good insight and a lot of good people writing their thoughts, writing about analytics, writing about prospects, and there's a lot of value in some of that. The trash comes from people who just spew opinions, who have no idea what they're talking about because they haven't done any background or any research. They haven't 
talk to people. You know, people think, you know, every conversation we have ends up in the newspaper. There's a lot of conversations we have with players or coaches, whatever, that never end up in the newspaper. You just have things in your memory bank on background and it helps you out. Um, you know, and then there's the, the rumor mongers. You know, people will suddenly, suddenly emerge on trade deadline day. I've heard this is going to happen. You know, and no one ever keeps a scorecard. You know, keep a scorecard on some of these people, how they do when they have their hot rumors. You know, I always love even even the big, big names in hockey. And they come up with all these trade rumors. This team is talking to this team about this guy. How many trades ever actually happen? Mm-hmm. You know, nobody ever keeps a scorecard of these guys. Do these rumors ever come true? You know, we're not in the business of rumors. We're in the business. Well, what's the, if you went to a college class and they said, what's the basic definition of journalism? The basic definition of journalism to me is the quest for the truth. It's not the quest for rumors that might not happen, might not come true. You know, and that's too often what people think journalism has become now. You know, people say to me on Twitter all the time, how come you never have any Sabres trade rumors? Yeah. Well, well, the reason is I don't deal in rumors. I deal in stories. I deal what's going on. And you know what? What's the point if I write stories about rumors that never happen? How is that giving you any information? that never happened. Um, you know, so it's a real negative balance at times. And uh, the problem is people no longer are discerning enough to find out and to see who's a professional journalist and who's just some blogger, some kid out of college who's never really covered a game, never goes in the locker room, never goes and does an interview, never goes any behind the scenes talking to people. And I want the general public to be a little more discerning in the way they consume media. But I do think in the era of social media and that it's become almost a pipe dream. I agree with you. And one thing specifically, and that's when you're a blogger, you could throw rumors out there and you know what? It's easy. You know why? Because you don't have any true accountability. You go throw a rumor out there and it turns out to be a crap rumor, whatever. You, what do you lose? A couple of Twitter followers? You know, you go on to the next right. one. Now, a guy like yourself, a guy like John Vogel, you guys start speculating enough and, you know, citing sources that are, are wrong, your asses are going to get fired at some point. You know what I mean? You, you continuously sure. putting out stuff that, that's not true. So in that regard... Our credibility is at stake. And exactly. There's not a lot of credibility at stake for bloggers that people aren't holding them to that line. I agree, man. And, and I've learned, from, trust me, I learned from some big mistakes. Conversely, though, I think there are some, and you said this too, there's some very good bloggers out there. Some guys are really good with analytics who have something different to, to offer. And those are the people that you really need to follow because those are the really good ones. Anyway, we've talked about that enough. Let's end this with, I like to steal from Michael K a little bit, uh, lightning round. I'm just going to ask you a couple things, random things, and just throw out whatever your first answer is, okay? And that's how we'll wrap this Got up. It. A few of your favorite athletes that you've ever covered? Uh, locally, Jeff Manto and Tori Lovello. Uh, nationally, going in the Hall of Fame this year, Jim Tomei. Just an unbelievable guy for insight and just being polite and being an all-around good guy. More specifically, for the Sabres, who's been your favorite player to cover? Doesn't have to be a superstar, obviously. It could be whoever. Your favorite cover guy to cover. 
my favorite guy to cover was absolutely Ryan Miller because you never knew what kind of mood he was going to be in. You always knew you were going to get good information and good insight. He was always a challenge. He demanded a lot out of you. He made sure you were up on your information, and he kept you on your toes, and I always enjoyed that. Right. It feels like you were born to be a sports writer, but just for the sake of the question, if you couldn't have been a sports writer or weren't working in sports in any type of capacity, what do you think you would have done with your life? I took some courses in college in urban studies. I've always been fascinated with urban planning. I think it sometimes it connects to sports because I love the way cities have built districts around sports facilities like we've seen in Cleveland, like we've seen uh, downtown ballparks in places like Baltimore and San Francisco. But, yeah, I'm always fascinated by urban planning. I take a lot of walks around downtowns and various cities when I'm on the road. What's your favorite all-time? I have to say all-time because you're a beat writer, so you don't get to watch a lot of TV. So what's your favorite all-time TV show? Oh, boy. <laughs> you don't get to watch a lot of TV, do you, man? No. When I was a kid, I used to love I used to love Emergency. Remember Emergency? Oh, with, yeah. Uh, Thursday nights. Firefighter, firefighter Gage and DeSoto and, you know, Rampart, you know, the hospital. That, that show always intrigued me and... Uh, you know, but recently that's that's a tough one. I you're right. I I don't watch a lot of TV that's not sports. I I think well, and I'm going to say well Seinfeld obviously, but then I I can't go down the sports realm. But then I have to think about. I always love Cheers too. I always for some reason was always fascinated by by Sam Malone and his story. It's your favorite all time movie? Uh, um, too much of it's about my life at times, but. I'm a big believer in the natural, and I'm a big believer in all the president's men. When I was nine years old, that all the president's men I saw was in the middle, right after Watergate. I was fascinated by the work of newspaper guys, and that really was a, it made a lot of impact. Okay, favorite concert you've been to, and I'm asking you this with a smile because I already know that it's not going to be Bruce Springsteen. You know, Pat. <clears throat> I literally, I might be the only person in the world that's never like gone to a concert at the odd or the arena or, and I literally have never gone to any kind, never went to Darien Lake in college. I just never went to concerts. Never have. Mm. All right. Well then let's get rid of the word concert. If you could ha- listen to one album, what would be your favorite album, favorite musical act to listen to? Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm a big, uh, Billy Joel guy. Oh, my know, wife would love you. That's a guy. That that's a guy. I've I've watched a lot of the ones on TV when they show them the concert at Shea or whatever. But I just never. I don't know why. I, I think about that, and I've been asked that before. Why do you never go to concerts? And I just never did. It's just not something I did. But Billy Joel is great. I love older Billy Joel. Um, I got into it in college, and you know, I still want. Hey, Sirius XM. Every time you take the Billy Joel channel off, I call and cancel my service. You know, keep the channel on. <laughs> All right, last question. You can have three dinner guests, dead or alive. Who you got? Well, one would be Ben Bradley, the late editor of the Washington Post, because I would want to quiz him to see if how, how how much he liked the way Jason Robards portrayed him in All the President's Men. Um, one would be Richard Nixon. Whoa, okay. Uh, I'm not a pro-Richard Nixon person at all, but I just think 
the way he abused power, the way he manipulated people, uh, the way he was a landslide electee and then fell in disgrace. I, I just think the whole specter of his life is really fascinating. And the other one would be John F. Kennedy. He would never survive today in the era of social media. <laughs> all of, clearly, all of his dalliances that have come out. But back then, he was almost a mythical figure who was president. You know, and the way his life ended so short. I mean, I I love American history, and I, I've been to the museum in Dallas, the sixth floor where Lee Harvey Oswald shot. I've probably been in that four or five times. I keep going back. It's just the whole thing is just fascinating to me. All right, Mike. Listen, I really I had a good time. I really appreciate your time. I stole you for probably longer than I should have, but whatever. Deal with it. It happens. And I always love your work. So I really appreciate you coming on. It means a lot to me. Really appreciate it. Hey, Pat, no problem at all. Would you just do me a favor? You're down there in, in Bradenton. Send some of the weather up here, will you? <laughs> it's, you know what, dude? It's coming soon, and, and you're going to love it. And then it sucks down here. See, you get to come down here. You came, like, last week. What a great time to be around Florida. Don't You, don't, you should be happy that the, the NHL doesn't play in the summer. You don't have to cover Rays games, do you? No, you don't. Well, and I, I remember the draft in 2015 in Sunrise when I could have picked. We were miserable. Oh. It was like close to 100 degrees that week in Fort Lauderdale. It was just miserable. I remember taking a cab half mile to the Weston Hotel on Fort Lauderdale Beach where the NHL buses departed from. I couldn't walk half a mile down the street because it was so hot out. It's hot, and it rains every day, too. Every Four o'clock, you could set your watch to it. Yes. <laughs> All right, Mike. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you. Take care, Pat. All right, that'll wrap up this episode. Huge thanks to Mike Harrington for that interview. We ended up going more than an hour. Easy to go an hour with Mike because he's just such an engaging guy and has so much sports knowledge and so many opinions. Mad respect for him for coming on and doing his podcast next week and I don't want to jinx myself by saying who before it happens but fingers crossed if everything works out right I got some incredible big time guests coming on both my Monday and Thursday episodes next week so again fingers crossed that works out definitely would be my two biggest guests to date regardless I'll have solid episodes for you on Monday and Thursday next week go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show You can subscribe there or pretty much anywhere podcasts are heard nowadays. We're just about everywhere at this point. You can also follow me on Twitter at Pat Tweets. Get all the latest news, information, and updates about this podcast and other stupid shit that I like to tweet out. Thanks again for listening. It truly means a lot to me for you to be giving up your time and listening to this podcast, not just once, but twice a week now. I sincerely thank you for that. Have a nice, safe weekend, and I'll talk to you guys again on Monday.